0: Thank you. So uh, as I did last week, I'm going to ask uh, you all to help me in the reading of these texts. I'm going to start over here on my left, and Will, if you would read that for us. Not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you <clears throat> um, now briefly, I mentioned last week that our approach in the first few weeks of this series would be to develop something of a biblical theology of the church which traces certain themes related to the church as they progress throughout redemptive history, and we saw in this passage in First Peter two that Peter draws from several Old Testament passages to define for his readers, New Covenant Christian believers, exactly what God has made them and called them. And the passages he quotes or alludes to come from Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, and Hosea 1 and 2. And now the terminology contained in these verses, the praises, titles, and designations, had been used exclusively in the Old Covenant uh, of his people, Israel. And Peter was drawing out the New Covenant implications in applying this to the New Covenant Church. And look at what he says. How does he describe the New Covenant Church? He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession... And in verse 10, that we are God's people, those who have received God's mercy. So then, considering the church as the people of God, we spent the remainder of our time last week looking at the church specifically in terms of its being God's assembly. And we started here because the English word church, which relates to the idea of belonging to the Lord, is the translation of the Greek term ekklesia, which means assembly. So the Greek term translated church in the New Testament means assembly, and that's why we began considering the church, the new covenant people of God, as God's assembly. And incidentally, ekklesia is also used in the New Testament in reference to God's assembly in the Old Testament, in particular the great assembly at Mount Sinai and also the assembly of God's people at the temple in Jerusalem are referred to as the ecclesia and you'll see that in Hebrews 2:12 and in Acts 7:38. So the New Testament uses ecclesia in reference to both the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God. And as I mentioned, the Greek translation of the Old Testament which was commonly in use in the time of Jesus and the Apostles, uses Ecclesia 77 times in reference to the assembly of the old covenant people of God. So this begins to show us some of the biblical and theological background of the word Ecclesia, which came to be identified with God's people under the new covenant. And there's much more that can be said about that background. And so last week we looked... First, at that prototypical assembly of God's people at Mount Sinai, at the establishment of the covenant in the presence of the holy angels, where God's people were gathered to hear his word, to receive his law, that they would fear God and obey his covenant. And we mentioned some of the many subsequent covenant renewal assemblies, where uh, the people of God gathered to Um, We knew the covenant and also we discussed the regular festal assemblies where all Israel would gather three times a year before the Lord in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Then finally last week we looked at the new covenant fulfillment of these old covenant shadows and we saw in Hebrews 12 verses 18 to 24 that as mediator of the new covenant, Christ has opened the way for his people to come, not to a mountain of fear and threatening, as Sinai was, nor do we come to a mountain physically located in the geography of Jerusalem, where the temple once stood as the dwelling place of God. But Christ has fulfilled the law and thus rendered the old covenant obsolete, and in doing so he's opened the way into the very throne room of God in the heavenly city. He has offered himself as a perfect sacrifice which perfects all who come to him by faith so that we can come boldly into the sanctuary of the true tabernacle in the Jerusalem above. We've come to the true Zion. We're told our worship, wherever we are, is centered around the very throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem with all the saints and the angels. And that is the definitive assembly of the people of God since the New Covenant has been established. And the New Covenant people of God have their identity there in that worshiping assembly at Christ's throne. So the church then is the people of God, God's assembly, to whom God has gathered, whom God has gathered together for the purpose of worship, to proclaim His excellencies as those who have been brought out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, in addition to the church being God's assembly, the church is the people of God specifically as God's dwelling. And before we see the Old Covenant background of this, I want us first to consider that it was at Pentecost that the faithful remnant of God's people were assembled together in the upper room. The disciples, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, were assembled in prayer before the Lord awaiting the promise of the Father and of Jesus the coming holy spirit and while this remnant was assembled together God's holy spirit came into the place where they were gathered the spirit whom Jesus said he would send to them and who would be in them came in the manifestation of his presence as it filled the room and the Spirit himself filled the people. And together then, it says that they raised their voices and declared the praises of God. As he had promised, Jesus had not left them as orphans, but came to abide with them, as he says, even to the end of the age, in the personal, powerful presence of the Spirit, dwelling not now in tents of skin like the tabernacle, but in tents of human flesh, not in the temple of stone, but in the living stones of the new humanity in Christ, the first fruits of the new creation. This dwelling of God in and among his people that we see at Pentecost was the realization of a promise given long centuries before. Now we saw last week that God not only met with Israel at Sinai but that he came to dwell with Israel in the temple at Jerusalem. But what we didn't discuss is where the prospect and promise of God dwelling with Israel first came in. Now, in fact, in the scriptures, the initial picture that we have of God dwelling with his people is not given in the form of a promise, but shown in the reality of the Garden of Eden, where the newly created Adam fellowshiped with his creator, his father, without hindrance, prior to the intrusive and destructive presence of sin. But of course, when sin entered the world, and death through sin, Adam was exiled from that garden paradise, where he knew that intimate fellowship in the presence of God. And now since that time that man was expelled from the garden. There have been many theophanies, or appearances of God, where God appeared in various ways. But those were few and were always very brief. We know, for instance, that there were occasions when God's presence manifested in extraordinary ways, such as in Genesis 15, in the cutting of the covenant with Abraham, and in Genesis 32, When after a night of wrestling, Jacob called that place Beth-El, the house of God. Or in the third chapter of Exodus, at the call of Moses, when God appeared as a fire that didn't consume the bush. And it's interesting that at the end of Moses' ministry, in referring to that earlier occasion, Deuteronomy 33.16 calls Yahweh the one who dwells in the bush. So we see... These brief glimpses of God making his presence known and these manifestations are all foreboding and dangerous, reminding us of what was lost when man was cast out of the garden of God. But they also show us God's intent to be among his people, to dwell with them, even though these occasions were very brief. But when we get to Exodus, we see the prospect of something more permanent. It was in the midst of Moses' ministry, specifically at Sinai, that the promise of God dwelling in the midst of his people in a more permanent way was made prominent. When God brought his people to Sinai and gathered them before him and he gave them his law, you remember the people uh, feared God. They didn't want to hear from God and they didn't want to hear him speak anymore. And you remember what they said to Moses. If I can get now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will live there, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Okay, so the people are in fear. They said, Let Moses speak to us. We like the idea of an intermediary, so we don't have to deal directly with God. Moses, they say, you can go and bring us the report. So Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law of God. And what he received there included instructions for the building of the tabernacle. In fact, 12 chapters of Exodus are devoted to the details of that. And, of course, the tabernacle was to be the place of God's dwelling in the midst of the people. And there are a few texts here that indicate that. Corrine, if you can read those. Okay, thank you. So here we see the renewal of the idea of God's that God's people were to be those among whom God dwells. So God was not coming just to declare His law and establish His covenant and go away. The law included the provision of His dwelling in their midst. And His covenant involved the localized manifestation of His presence among them. And really, this was an amazing and a wonderful provision. But it was also a very dangerous one, wasn't it? Do you remember what, what happened when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law? What were the people doing? Okay, they were making a golden calf. That's right. They were involved in rebellion and idolatry. They were reveling in pagan idolatry. They had fashioned the calf, they were bowing down to worship it, they were consumed in pagan revelry and feasting. It was outright rebellion against God and against the covenant that they had just sworn to keep. Now, who remembers what happens next? Okay. Came down from the uh, Moses came down from the mountain, broke the, the ten commandments, condemned Around um, uh, the golden calf, they made into powder and made them drink. That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. And we're going to get to that. But I want to talk about something just prior to that, um, before he actually came down. It's interesting. Before Moses comes down, God tells him about the rebellion. And he declares that he's going to destroy them. Des, if you can read that for us. me that my wrath may burn hot against them, and consume them, in order that I may make great nations Okay, thank you. Okay, so Exodus 32, 7-10, God tells Moses what's going on, and notice he says to him that the Israelites are your people, um, and he says they're stiff-necked people, and that he's going to consume them in his wrath. But then, Moses, learning through this, the hard lessons of ministry, and sacrifice, and grace, pleads with God, and says, don't consume them in your wrath. And he says, and he pleads with them on the basis of two things. First, first, the basis of God's reputation, in verse 12, he says, the Egyptians will say that you brought them out with evil intent to kill them and to consume them. So his prayer is driven by concern for God's name. And secondly, he pleads on the basis of God's faithfulness. In verse 13, he says, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and don't cut off this multitude. Okay, so... This is Moses' prayer and the prayer of this righteous man prevailed. And it says Moses went down the mountain with the two tablets and as they approached, he could hear the revelry and when they got closer and caught sight of this repulsive display, now it was Moses' anger that burned hot against them. And he smashed the tablets of the law as Forrest just talked about. And Ron, if you can read this for us. they had made and it with fire and ground it with powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel break it. Okay. So shortly after pleading for mercy for the people, God sees the idolatry and he's furious. Moses sees this idolatry. He's furious. And we find Aaron then pleading with him not to let his anger burn hot. And Aaron says, you know the people that they are set on evil... And then Aaron goes on to explain how they prevailed upon him to make them false gods in his wonderful description of how he threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. just, there it was. Um, Now we're told that after he had heard Aaron's pitiful excuse, Moses decided to put down this rebellion by force. And he says he stood at the gate of the camp and he asked, who was with the Lord, and only the Levites stood with him, and they strapped on their swords, and 3,000 Israelites were killed by the Levites that day for their rebellion. So God's judgment came swift and terrible upon them for their idolatry. And the next day, Moses tells the people that he's going to intercede for them, which he does, saying, Lord, if you won't forgive then blot out my name as well. And God says essentially, I'll deal with the people as I see fit. But he tells Moses to go and lead them into the land in chapter 33, verse 1. Mike, if you can read that. Okay, so in verse 2 then, following this, God says he will send an angel before them to drive out the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land. But he says, I will not go up among you. And that's what it reads in Exodus 33, if you can read that. Exodus 33, 3. Okay, so God says, I won't go up among you. It's very interesting to read Exodus 33 and 34 and see how this unfolds. But essentially God says, I will not go up among you. If I dwell in your midst, even for a single moment, I will consume you because you are a stiff-necked people. Then the text tells us that Moses would pitch a tent outside the camp, far off from the camp, it says, And it was there that Moses would go to the tent of meeting and God would come down in the pillar of cloud and meet with him at the door of the tent at a safe distance, if you will, from the stiff-necked Israelites. And some, no doubt, thought that this was a fair arrangement. God could meet with Moses without being a threat to the people. Moses could go and get counsel and revelation and he could intercede for them. God would be close enough if they needed them, but not too close for comfort, if you will. But but for Moses, this was not an acceptable arrangement. In verse 12, he says, Lord, you say that I am to bring up this people, but who will go with me? You've told me that you know me by name and that I found favor in your sight. But he says, Lord, I need to know you. Show me your ways that I might know you and find favor. And then in 33.15, he reaches this conclusion. Okay, and he explains further in verse 16. Either one, that's fine. Okay, so Moses says, if you won't go with us, there's no point in going. The whole point is the presence of God with his people. If he doesn't dwell with them, if he's not among them, Moses says, there will be no distinction between them and every other nation. It's God's presence that makes his people holy. It's his presence that makes the land holy. If he wasn't to go in their midst, there would be no point in going at all. See, it's not sufficient that God be a utilitarian God to his people. Outside the camp, but close enough in case we need him. Ready to take on our enemies to fight for us. Ready to give us counsel as we require it. But not too close. Not dwelling in our midst. Not imposing upon us his holy presence. And so... In verse 17, God responds to this faithful intercessor, his friend Moses. And Joe, if you can read that for us. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found faith in my sight, and I know you by name. Okay. So then, following this, Moses says, Please, Lord, show me your glory. Because... This is what it's all about, seeing and knowing and loving the glory of God. And what does God do? He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But you can't see my face, Moses, for man cannot see me and live. And the next day, after Moses made the necessary preparations, Moses goes up again onto Mount Sinai, and God shelters him in the rock and covers him as his glory passes by. And in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, we read this. The Lord passed before him. Okay, and now as Yahweh proclaimed his name and his attributes, it tells us that Moses bowed quickly and worshipped. And in verse 9, it says this. Marilyn? Okay, so Moses pleads that the Lord will go with them. And he doesn't say, because these people aren't that bad, or because they'll get better. No, he says, go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin. Pardon our iniquity and sin, because Yahweh had just revealed himself as the merciful, gracious, forgiving God. So, Moses throws himself, if you will, on the nature of the Lord, and he says, and take, for, take us for your inheritance. And he doesn't say, be our inheritance. He says, take us for your inheritance. And what happens? The Lord says, I will dwell in your midst, and I will go up among you. And so the tabernacle is built, and the Lord dwells then with his people. But before we look further at the tabernacle, I want us to note that the Apostle John makes reference to this narrative when he tells us about the incarnation of the eternal Word who is God Himself. And in John chapter 1 verse 18, we read this. Joe? Okay, so here he tells us that no man has seen God. Not even Moses was permitted to see his face. But the only God who was at the Father's side has made him known. God who spoke to Moses, who gave him his word, who wrote his word on the stone tablets, has been more fully revealed in the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the supreme manifestation of the self-expression of of God. Now four verses earlier we read this well-known verse. And the word flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, he says that the incarnate word made his dwelling among us. And here the Greek word skeneo means literally that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. And for anyone familiar with the Greek Old Testament, this reference would have been very clear. The skene was the tabernacle that Moses was commanded by God to build,
1: as we saw in Exodus 25, 9.
0: Exactly as I've you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of the worship, or, sorry. Um, So you shall make it. Okay, thank you. And so... This then is where God said that he would dwell with his people. Good brother. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Okay. Now in the tabernacling of Christ among us, God has chosen to dwell amongst his people now in a far more personal way as a man. And again, John 1, 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the Hebrew and Greek words translated glory, kabod and doxa, refer to the visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. And he says that we have seen his glory. Where Moses could not see the face of God, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he refers to this glory as of the Son from the Father, as full of grace and truth. And again, describing this glory this way brings us back to Exodus 34, 6. The glory of God declared to Moses on the mountain, merciful and gracious, the Hebrew says there, is full of chesed, loving kindness, emphasizing the graciousness of that love. It's full of hesed and emeth, meaning truth or faithfulness. The, the New American Standard translates it there as truth. So we have John declaring that the glory of the Son, tabernacled in human flesh, full of grace and truth, is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory dwelling in among his people. And again, the whole passage in context here, Kathy, if you'll read that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Okay, thank you. So now, back to uh, Exodus. We have there, God reveals Himself as full of grace and truth. uh, And the tabernacle is built for God to dwell in the midst of His people. Again, not at a distance, but in their midst. The God who had walked in the garden with Adam, who had come and covenanted with Abraham, who had come and revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel, has now provided a way where he would dwell in the midst of his people, Israel, in the tabernacle, and then Exodus 40 verses 34 to 35 give us the account of his coming to fill the tabernacle. Thank you. So the tabernacle is the dwelling place of God in Israel's midst, and it provides for us two things. First, it's a form of insulation from the glory of the presence of God. You've got the veil to the Holy of Holies, and you've got then the veil to the holy place, and then, of course, there's the veil around the whole structure. The glory of God is in here with the Ark of the Covenant, and God dwells above that, and there only the high priest is allowed to go. Um, Only the priests are allowed to enter here, so there are successive barriers or insulation from the presence of God's glory. But the tabernacle is not only a barrier, it's also a way of approach. And the way of the approach is first by the altar of sacrifice, where the blood is offered, where the sacrifice is made, and through that blood the priest is able to enter. Secondly, by the labor of cleansing, where the priest cleanses himself, and then into where the lampstands are and the table of showbread and the golden altar of incense So the tabernacle is both a barrier and a way of approach through the shedding of the blood. And so that's the symbolism of the tabernacle. God will indeed dwell in their midst, but he dwells there in a way that shows both his holiness and his grace. The veil is there, but it's also the way of entrance into his presence. Now this pattern is also seen in the dwelling of God in the temple in Jerusalem, which was to be his permanent dwelling place. But we know that even as we see his glory filling the, the tabernacle, we also see it filling the temple in Second Chronicles 7 verses 1 to 3, but we also see it departing in Ezekiel 10 because of the judgment of exile from the land. And as we saw, this is all leading up to something far greater than a tabernacle of skins or a temple of cedar or stones. All of that is symbol and shadow in light of the further revelation of the new covenant. The greater reality is the word become flesh. And we read in John 2 that Jesus cleansed the temple, but as he stood in the midst of it, he declared destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Of course, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so the question is, what then is the true tabernacle? It is the body of Jesus Christ. This is what it means for God to dwell in the midst of his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God is among his people in the incarnate Christ, because he took human flesh and came to dwell with us as the true tabernacle. He is the true temple, and so he fulfills all that those shadows intended and, and pointed to. And that's why with the Samaritan woman, he doesn't give a geographical location as to where they should worship. Rather, he points to the coming hour of his death and resurrection, which would change everything for the worship of God. Because now the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The spirit that he would send, as he had offered to the Samaritan woman at the well, and the truth of the fullness of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only access to the Father. So when Jesus dies, the veil is torn. The way is open to enter into the presence of the most holy place. All that the temple symbolized, the dwelling place of God, the holiness of God, the gracious way of approach to God is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The barrier is destroyed, the way of access is opened, and we can come boldly into his presence. There is no holy place on earth anymore. There is no earthly temple, no earthly sanctuary or altar because Jesus Christ has once for all opened the way by offering his blood once for all as our great high priest in the true sanctuary in heaven. It is there that his blood is effectually offered and it is there where we find our access and it's there to where we go to find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, I have to mention, if only briefly, the further revelation that God has given in light of Christ's work, the New Covenant realities that He has brought about. Specifically, it is at the New Covenant Church, you and I, collectively and individually, it is we who are called the temple of God. And this is because the Lord dwells in us, just as he has promised his disciples in the upper room. And this is because of our union with Jesus, who is the true temple, as ultimately seen in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in Revelation 21. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was 50 days after Christ, our Passover, was slain. When the day of Pentecost came, assembled together in the upper room was the faithful remnant of Israel, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And it was that assembly of God's people who were the first to become the dwelling place of God as his new covenant people, as his new covenant temple. As the Spirit would come to them and fill the room where they were and fill each one of them as the tabernacle and the temple before them had been filled with the presence of the Lord. And there, that new covenant assembly would have its beginning in all of the unique power and privileges that Christ had provided in the blessings of the new covenant in His blood. That assembly would increase by 3,000 that day, even as the assembly at Sinai was reduced by 3,000 the day Moses came down with the tablets of law and found Israel in their idolatrous rebellion. But as I say, that day in Pentecost was just the beginning, and the New Testament reveals much more about the church as a temple, as the dwelling place of God's. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.16, here Paul refers to the church collectively as God's temple because it is the place of God's dwelling, and I'm going to jump to the back, if you guys can read that Pete, Can you see that? not know that you God's temple and Gods Okay. So uh, not only that, but individually, <clears throat> we are admonished to holiness because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 6:19 to 20 says. Okay. Then in Ephesians 2:18 to 22, again seen collectively, the new covenant people of God, Jew and Gentile together, are God's holy temple, the dwelling place of God. Thank you. And then in Second Corinthians four, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians six, verses fourteen to eighteen, here Paul quotes several old covenant texts as fulfilled in the church, two of which we had seen earlier in relation to Israel in the wilderness, one of which was specifically in reference to the building of the tabernacle, that is Exodus twenty nine, forty-five. And Brother, can you read this text for us? Thank you. So, again, we are the temple of the living God. And then the quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. As he had said in reference to the tabernacle, it's now fulfilled in reference to the church. And then lastly, Peter, in the verses just prior to those that we started with, speaks of the church as a spiritual house. Made of living stones, just as Christ was the living stone, as, and there we conduct our priestly work through him. And, Brandon? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself like Okay, thank you. Okay then, so what is the church? The church is the people of God. It is the people whom God has called and assembled to worship Him in the heavenly assembly. It's the people among whom He dwells and in whom He dwells by His Spirit. And I had wanted to discuss the church also as the people whom God has chosen, but um, there's too much to say on that, and it's going to have to wait till next week for us to get to that. So we'll conclude with this. Are there any questions or comments anybody would like to share? Okay. Well, thank you all. Let's close out in prayer. Our Holy Father, Lord, we are amazed at your grace, at your said, your loving kindness, your graciousness, your faithfulness. Lord, that in the midst of a sinful people, you have chosen to dwell and that you have chosen to to make that possible through the sacrifice of your son Lord I pray that you would help us to grasp in a more profound way in a more life changing way what is the great privilege you have granted us what is that great kindness you have shown us and continue to show us Lord, help us to delight in your glory, to be eager to see your glory, and as faithful disciples and as those who are filled with your Spirit, yes, even to display that glory for others to see that they too might glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.